0: Well, it's good to be with all of you here at Gospel of Grace. We have the honor of looking at Jesus calming the sea today. But I want to begin by reminding you of the last section we were in in Matthew chapter 8 was one in which Jesus had warned his disciples that following him meant that they would have great difficulties in this life. Why? Because being a disciple of Christ is a very difficult thing. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 8:20 that the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Today, as we study Matthew 8:23 through27 and Jesus calming the sea, we see that while the Son of Man at times may have living accommodations less than the animals, he is still Lord and master over all of creation. Now, I want to mention a word about the application of this passage. Today's passage is not about you and I having to have more faith so that God will somehow still the storms that are in our life. This passage is not to be allegorized. It's not about us. This passage is about who Jesus of Nazareth is, that Jesus calming the sea proves that he is, in fact, God. God because God alone can control the weather and the sea. Brothers and sisters, all of this was designed by Matthew to show us that your faith in Jesus Christ is well-placed because in him, the great creator, you can have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Now, when we get into verses 23 through 24 here of Matthew 8, where we're beginning, I want to set the stage. Remember that Jesus is at Capernaum, in his now hometown because remember he moved from nazareth to capernaum and he's getting in the boat to go to the other side of the sea of galilee and the other side in the gospels is a reference to the gentile side the side that is on the east side and southeast of galilee in the area of the decapolis where the gentiles are and so that's where we pick it up here verses 23 through 24 it says when he got into the boat his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. Now, Notice, first of all, the reference to the disciples here, I believe, is a reference to the twelve. There is a larger group of disciples that are following Christ, but I believe both here in chapter 8 and later in Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus walks on the water, it is a reference to the 12 disciples, that's who are with him more than likely. Now notice in verse 24, Matthew describes the ferocity of the storm. Notice he says, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. Now the term great there is the term mega. Nothing special about it. It's often used in the Greek New Testament for great. But what you're going to see is two verses later, Jesus will bring mega calm. So whereas the creation brings a mega storm, the creator will bring mega calm. The other thing that's interesting to note is notice the term storm. The term storm that's no- normally used in the New Testament is the term chemon. If you're to transliterate that into English, it's C-H-E-I-M-O-N. Again, C-H-E-I-M-O-N. That's the term that's most often used first storm in the new testament the term here that's chosen by matthew is seismos Uh, many of you have heard of a seismograph that of course measures earthquakes and so literally what matthew is saying is that there was a great shaking literally in the sea and again he may be using this as a play on jesus being still the creation is shaking but the Creator is calm Okay, we'll talk about that in just a moment here. Now, notice this great storm then has come upon the sea. And I know many of you in here have been to Israel, and you know the shape of the Sea of Galilee. It's basically a huge bowl. For those of you that have never been to Israel, the Sea of Galilee, think of Lake Mille Lacs. It's massive, but it's much deeper. And it is surrounded by huge cliffs. In fact, the Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level. And there are these huge cliffs that surround all the sides of the sea. And so what happens is when you have warm, moist air, a rapidly approaching cold front from the northwest, remember, cold air is dense, it sinks, it lifts the moist air up and creates thunderstorms, and then the storm itself, the downdrafts, are accelerated by the massive slopes of the Sea of Galilee. This would have been a swashbuckler. It would have been a nasty storm indeed. And the reason I'm focusing on the details is it explains how it is that seasoned fishermen, men who spent many a years on this lake, like Peter, James, and John, how is it that they could be taken off guard by such a storm? The reason, dear ones, is because they can't see it approaching because of the high cliffs to the northwest. So what you and I have to see then is that there's a result clause. Anytime you see a so that, it's either a purpose or a result clause. Here it's a result clause. What's the result of this ferocious storm? It says so that the boat was being covered with the waves. What Matthew is showing us is that the situation in the boat is so dire that if Jesus does not intervene, these men will die tonight. That's the picture that you have to have in your mind. There is no question about the dire situation of the boat. There is no question about the ferocity of the storm. The only question is how will these disciples react? Will they panic as human beings we're all prone to do? Or will they demonstrate great faith because in the boat with them is the creator of all things? Now, notice here, after you see the result of the storm, it says about Jesus that he himself was asleep. He himself is asleep in the back of the boat. And Jesus being asleep, I think, is Matthew's way of showing us that, yes, Jesus truly is a human being. As a human being, remember, he's truly God and truly man. We'll focus on his divinity in the next verses. But here, the focus is on his humanity. Yes, Jesus is really human. When you and I feel thirst, hunger, or fatigue... Jesus felt the same things. Jesus truly is a man. And I think the fact that he's human may be further accentuated by, notice the intensive use of autos, which is the pronoun for himself. That's what we call an adjectival intensive. And I know I'm boring you, but hold on. Couldn't Matthew just say, but Jesus was asleep? If you said, hey, I have a friend, Jerry. Jerry went to the store. You could say that. But what if you say, Jerry himself went to the store? Now you're bringing attention to that this wasn't some stunt double or some friend of Jerry's or some stand-in, some surrogate. It was Jerry himself. And I think that may be Matthew's reason for using it because he wants us to see that, yes, Jesus really is a human being. He really is sawing logs, sleeping at the back of this boat. Jesus being asleep in the back of the boat Shows us two important truths number one Jesus the creator isn't rattled by the creation But number two it shows us that he really is A human being who sleeps The focus here dear ones in verses 23 through 24 Is on the humanity of christ, but now As we turn to verses 25 through 26 The focus is now on his divinity Jesus who sleeps in the back of the boat as a man is the creator who can miraculously intervene. Notice it says, And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Now, first of all, dear ones, notice in verse 25, the disciples have to come and w- they have to wake him up. That's how calm Jesus is. They have to wake him. Up. Don't you love people like that in life? So calm. The house is on fire, but it's, it's not a threat to them. That's Jesus, the Creator. But notice here the panic that they are in. They say, "Save us, Lord! We are perishing." Literally in the Greek, there's three words, and that's all you have is three words. It begins with kurie, Lord," the vocative case. They address him. Then it's "Sotso save." And then Apollumi, perishing. Three words. That's all it is. Lord, save us. We're perishing. Now, the brevity of that is designed by Matthew to show the absolute panic that these men are in. These seasoned fishermen, remember, these are men who spent thousands of hours on this lake in boats just like this. And they have done all they can to right the boat. And they know with their great experience, that if Jesus doesn't intervene, they're going to die that night. They know that. These are professional fishermen. They know that. And don't let the irony slip by you that here are these professional fishermen like Peter, James, and John, again, who spend much of their life on this lake in boats just like this. Now they're relying upon a carpenter's son to save them. It's very ironic, is it not. Now, notice here in verse 26, we see Jesus' reaction to them. It says, He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Literally, he says, Why are you cowardly? The term cowardly there, delos, is the same term that's used in Revelation 21.8 for those who are cowardly and unbelieving and therefore don't enter into the new Jerusalem. However, here... The rebuke isn't as severe because notice he doesn't say you men of no faith He says you men of little faith Throughout the gospel of matthew The disciples are portrayed as men who yes, they believe they are believers But they don't believe as they ought And so time and time again They fail And so this finally is reversed at what at pentecost at pentecost the spirit comes upon them The Spirit is the one who brings to remembrance all that Christ commanded. And finally, they start believing as they ought. But again, the text here, the focus is not on the inadequacy of the disciples, but on the greatness of Christ. That's what the focus of this text is. Christ intervenes not because of the great faith of the disciples, but because he's a great Savior. Let me tell you a story that I enjoyed from D.A. Carson. Some of you know that he's a famous evangelical scholar. Probably has written more information than most have in the last 70 years. He's written a ton of material. But D.A. Carson gave a great message I saw on YouTube one time. And in his message, he talks about the very first Passover. And he talks about how there were two rabbis at the first Passover. This is a story to illustrate something. He says there was Rabbi Jim and there was rabbi ed and he says rabbi jim doesn't have much faith but rabbi ed had a lot of faith so rabbi jim he's putting the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of his home and he's pretty nervous he has a little faith he looks at rabbi ed he goes i don't know what do you think of this we're putting blood of the lamb on the doorpost of our home he's gonna be destroying angels Is gonna be good enough well rabbi ed says oh yeah it's gonna be just fine didn't the lord say that didn't the lord tell us to do this Rabbi Ed has all sorts of faith. Rabbi Jim, not so much. D.A. Carson's question to the audience is Which rabbi is saved, Jim or Ed? His answer was They both were. Because their salvation was never dependent upon the greatness of their faith, but upon the greatness of the provision. The blood of the Lamb saves. These disciples are going to be spared that night, not because of the greatness of their faith, but because of the greatness of their Savior. Notice here, Jesus ends up taking care of this storm in short order. Notice in blue, it says, Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Notice the term rebuke there. It's a surprising one. The verb there, epitamao, is a verb that you wouldn't expect because oftentimes it's used in context with rebuking morally individuals who need morally to be rebuked and admonished. And so the fact that Jesus is rebuking the storm may be Matthew's way of showing us that in Jesus' mind, the storm is an evil intrusion designed by Satan to derail his ministry and harm his disciples. He rebukes it. And in so doing, notice it says it became perfectly calm. Do you remember two verses earlier? We saw that the storm was a mega storm. The term mega was used. Perfectly is actually mega. The creation brought about a mega storm. Jesus, the creator, brought about mega calm. The term literally in Greek is galene, calm, megale. There's a little ring to it. And I want you to realize here that as Jesus rebukes the winds and the sea, the very storm that created this tempest on the Sea of Galilee, the storm doesn't take 30 to 40 minutes to blow itself out. It is immediately done. Why? Because the creator who spoke a word and the universe leapt into existence now speaks and the storm stops. That's the power of of jesus of nazareth now as we approach the last verse of our section we see here the disciples coming to a startling discovery once again notice it says the men were amazed and said what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him brothers and sisters notice the disciples are amazed Famatso. they're absolutely amazed and i've shown earlier in matthew time and time again The masses are often amazed, and yet they don't believe. That is not how amazed here is being used with the disciples. Yes, the disciples do believe, but not as they ought. What you'll see throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and for that matter, all of the Gospels, is time and time again, the disciples come to the realization that Jesus, the man they're with, is truly God. And when they come to that realization, they are often amazed. Let me give you an example of this. Do you recall in Luke chapter 5 that the disciples had been out fishing all night and they didn't catch anything? And remember, these are pros. These are the Al Linders of their day. That was a professional fisherman. I don't know if anybody remembers him. I don't know all the professional fishermen. But they were good. They caught lots of fish, and yet this night they were skunked. Well, remember in the morning, Jesus meets them. He's on the shore, and he kind of yells out to them, hey, cast your net on the other side. And you get the sense that perhaps Peter, James, and John, they may be a little annoyed. I think Peter's probably thinking, okay, Jesus, you're the master. We're the disciples. But give us some credit here. We're professional fishermen. But nonetheless, to humor them, they throw the net on the other side, and lo and behold, they catch so many fish, the nets can hardly contain them. And do you remember that it dawns on Peter afresh just who Jesus is? Do you remember what he says in Luke 5, 8? He says, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. What's so fascinating is oftentimes when you see the disciples realize who Christ is and they're amazed. They're often more fearful of him than they were of the storm. To be in the presence of the Holy One of Israel is a fearful thing. His power on display. And I love the question that they asked. The question they asked is designed to drive the entire audience to, To ask the same question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Notice the question, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Brothers and sisters, these disciples knew their Old Testament very well. They would have had huge sections of it completely memorized. And I'm sure the passage that they thought of was Job 9-8, where Job says, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? That is a rhetorical question. The rhetorical question demands only one answer. What's the answer? Yahweh. The only one who can trample down the waves of the sea is Yahweh. Jesus tramples down the waves of the sea. Who must he be? He's Yahweh. He's the living God. That's who he is. And brothers and sisters, this question, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him confronts the whole world? Every human being is confronted with this question. You're confronted with it today. Everyone listening to me, you're confronted with this question. What manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And there's only two possible answers to it. You can harden your heart and say, I want nothing to do with him. I'll go my own way, thank you. Or you can trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. The real question is. You're all in a storm. I am too. Are you going to trust in the creator? Or are you going to trust in yourself? Brothers and sisters. Thus far in our studies in Matthew. We've seen Jesus demonstrate his mastery over leprosy. Over demons. Over illness. And now over the creation itself. Why? Because in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. We have God with us. That's the message that Matthew was delivering to us here today. Okay, well, I'm getting all fired up. Let's get to our applications. i got to settle down here. I have two of them here for you this morning. In fact, I'm going to get a drink real quick. All right. Number one, we must understand that Jesus is both truly God and truly man, In one person and operates from either nature. Let me talk about a word about discipleship. You know, over the years that I've been a pastor, I'll often have people that will come up to me and they say, Hey, Eric, doesn't discipleship kind of look like getting in person with somebody, spending copious amounts of time with them, going to ball games, doing this and that? Well, what's very interesting is when we look at the definition of discipleship according to the Bible, it's teaching people the doctrines of Christ. How do I say that, and by what grounds do I say it? Well, think about Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the very end of the book. Jesus says, because he's been given all authority, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all the things that I have commanded you. So teaching the doctrines of Christ is discipleship. And if you think about it, when we're talking about the gospel, the gospel is the core of Jesus Christ's doctrine. The gospel means evangelion; It means good news. And what kind of good news is it? Is it the good news that you're not being audited? Is it good news the Vikings may have a better receiving core this year? What is the good news? No, it's the good news about the person and work of Christ. And so if you and I are teaching people about who Christ is, what are we doing? We're doing discipleship. And so that's what Bob and I have vowed to do. We're going to teach the scriptures verse by verse, handle it in context. By the way, Bob gave a stirring Sunday school this morning about the importance of exegesis. Please, if you have an opportunity, listen to it. But the the idea then is that we teach people who Christ is and what he has done. What are we doing? We're discipling them. This text, brothers and sisters, isn't about who we are. It's about who Christ is. That's the application of it. Listen to Craig Blomberg. Craig Blomberg, a great scholar in the book of Matthew, listen to what he says. He says, quote, contemporary applications of this miracle almost universally demythologize the narrative, deriving a naturalistic lesson from a supernatural event so that... It becomes a lesson about Jesus stilling the storms of our lives. Matthew did not likely have such an application in mind. There are implications for discipleship here to be sure that we must turn to Jesus as the one to trust in all circumstances of life. But the focus of this passage remains squarely Christological on who Christ is, unquote. Well said, Craig Blomberg. This text is about Christ is number two we should be convinced that Jesus alone has all authority to save since he is Yahweh who can control the sea brothers and sisters your trust should be in the creator not in anything in the creation Jesus proves that he is the creator by controlling the weather and the sea let's begin with number the first one here and what I want to do is I want to talk about how throughout church history the person and work of Christ has been attacked. And I want to show you that through the various heresies, and then we'll unpack what the Bible is teaching us today through Matthew about who Christ is. Let's begin with one of the first heresies that infected the church in the second century, and that was really a Judaizing heresy, the heresy of the Ebionites who claimed that Christ only had the Spirit after baptism and that he was not the pre-existent God in and of himself. And so Ebionism, Ebionites, they were the ones who said initially that Jesus wasn't fully God. Now, there was another heresy that actually dated slightly before that, and that was from the Docetists. Notice the term Docetist. It comes from the Greek verb dokeo, which means to seem. And the idea with the Docetists, like Martian and like Serenthus that John had to deal with, the apostle... These were men who said Jesus only seemed Docao to be human, but he really wasn't. That was their heresy. And so notice they're attacking the humanity of Christ. And all of this is happening right in the second century, first at the end of the first century, into the second century. So right away, you have an attack in history on the person of Jesus Christ, some claiming he's not really God's, others claiming he's not really human. Next up in the fourth century was a man named Arius. Arius led to something called Arianism. Now, Arius was a teacher who had a very nifty slogan. Bob has talked about the slogan that he had. The slogan that Arius had was a slogan which said something like, there was a time when he was not. And it was kind of sing-songy. In fact, in fact, much of the known world at the time was infected with that slogan. They would have known it. It was very catchy, and so they would say there was a time when he was not. And what they believed is, remember when it talks about Jesus being the only begotten, John 14 John one eighteen. The term "only begotten" is monogenes, and they say, "Aha, he's the first of the created beings." That's not what "only begotten" means. Monogenes means the one and only. If you have an only son, he's the model Why? Because it's him and no other. That's who Jesus is. There's none like him. He is the unique one. It doesn't mean that he came into existence at a point in time. Now, why am I laboring Arianism? Because that's the same heresy the Jehovah Witnesses have today. And one thing you have to see with all of these heresies, they just end up getting repackaged. Someone puts the Jehovah Witness sticker on the door, but they're still what? They're Arian in the rejection of the deity of christ again he was stood against rightly by athanasius who stood firm for the faith here's apollinarians apollinarius was the bishop of laodicea in the fourth century he claimed that the divine logos the word took over the human mind of jesus so jesus didn't really have a human mind therefore what he really wasn't human again an attack on the humanity of christ Again, he was the bishop of Laodicea, Apollinarius was in the 4th century. Let's look at Nestorianism. Nestorius was the patriarch of Constantinople, and in 428 A.D., he published the fact that he did not believe that Jesus was one person with two natures, but rather Jesus was two persons with two natures. So he rejected the union of the divine and the human nature of Christ. Instead of having one person with two natures, Jesus now was two people with two natures. And again, this was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Next, and this is the last one I'll share with you, is Eutychianism. Eutychius was an, another man from Constantinople. A lot of bad things happened in Constantinople, by the way. In 433 AD, he declared that Jesus only had one nature, which was a mixture of deity and in humanity. So the idea that Eutyches taught was not that you had two natures, Jesus being truly God and truly man, but rather it was the human nature, like a drop of honey, was dropped into the ocean, Jesus' divine nature, and it was completely dissolved. And so now you only have really one man with one nature. That was Eutychianism, and that was condemned at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Brothers and sisters, the reason I'm showing you all of these throughout church history is right from the very beginning, the person of Christ has been under attack. Either people denying his true humanity or his true divinity. Or saying, well, one nature is just blended into the other. Or, he, yeah, he may be somewhat human, but he doesn't really have a human mind. Well, then, therefore, he's not really truly human. What the Bible is teaching us today through the Gospel of Matthew, and I'll show you how he's doing it, is that the person of Christ is one person with two natures. The two natures that he has, one is truly God and truly man. Or you can say fully God and fully man. Jesus the one person has two natures. And these natures, notice they must be distinguished but never separated. Now let me illustrate that. You know, human beings are comprised of both a body, the material portion, and the soul, the immaterial portion. When we die, there is a separation of body and soul. Second Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our body goes into the ground. Our soul goes to be with the Lord. That's for believers. Okay? So when we're talking about the nature of Christ, we must distinguish between the two natures, but we can never separate them. Think about it. You don't want... You can distinguish between your body and soul, but if you separate them, you're dead. You got me? That's the idea. With Jesus being one person, we distinguish between the natures but we can never separate them. They are always part of the Messiah in the hypostatic union. Now, some will say, well, this is a contradiction. How can it be truly God and truly man at the same time? It is not a contradiction. The law of non-contradiction, if we were to violate it, we would be saying that Jesus is truly God and not truly God at the same time in the same relationship, or he's truly human and not truly human at the same time in the same relationship. We're not saying that at all. We're saying that he's truly God and truly man simultaneously. There are many in here who are both daughters and mothers. Is that a contradiction? How about sons and fathers? That's not a contradiction. It is unique. Jesus is unique. That's what he's called, the only begotten, monogenes. There is none like him. There's none like him. The only one that's the God-man. And brothers and sisters, this is what is being taught to us in the Gospel of Matthew today. The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 8, talking about Jesus stilling the storm, is too important to focus on Christ rather than us. We have to focus on Christ rather than us. It's too important. Because if we focus on ourselves and we don't talk about the doctrine of Christ, we're not doing the church a favor at all. Dear ones, Jesus is truly God, truly man, and always will be in one person. Now, what I want you to do is turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 9-6. Isaiah 9-6. What I want to do now is show you that when we turn to the Old Testament, far from being surprised that the Messiah was to be truly God and truly man, we have to see that the prophets taught this doctrine. The prophets like Isaiah and Hosea and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, all of them, they weren't just giving us haphazard predictions. And yes, they were giving us predictions. But they were also teaching messianic doctrine, who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, what he would do. So notice here in Isaiah 9, 6, hope you've turned there. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Here Isaiah is building off the Emmanuel prophecy of Isaiah seven fourteen. Who is this child that's going to be born of the virgin? Well, he's giving you more doctrine, more teaching about who he is. Notice the prediction. It's a prediction, and it's doctrine. Here's who the Christ will be. It says, Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Notice that this Messiah, this Emmanuel child of Isaiah seven fourteen, is really going to be a son. He's going to be a child, a son that will be born to us. But notice right after that, stressing his humanity, notice he's also going to be called what? Wonderful counselor. Let's stop there with the term wonderful. The term wonderful there, Paul, if you're to transliterate it, P-E-L-E in the Hebrew, I would render that miraculous. I would render that phrase, in fact, a miraculous counselor, a miraculous worker. The term "pelay," remember, that's used of God rebuking Sarah earlier in the book of Genesis. Do you remember in Genesis where Yahweh is? He's actually in an angelic form. I believe it's the pre-incarnate Christ. You have the angel of Yahweh, and he confronts Sarah, saying, "You laughed at me." Remember, she scoffs at the idea that her being so old would she would be able to have a child, and so she laughs and the Lord, all caps, it's Yahweh, he calls her on the carpet for it. She says, I didn't laugh. He says, oh, but you did. And do you remember right after that, he says, is anything too difficult for Yahweh? The term difficult there is Palay. The same term that's used for wonderful counselor, for the wonderful part. What Yahweh was saying, is anything too miraculous for me? Can I not take a dead womb and bring forth life? Of course he can. And so what's being described here is that he's a miraculous counselor. In fact, right after that, it's El Gabor, he's mighty God. 700 years prior to the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah is teaching the Messiah is truly a son, he's truly a man, and he's truly God in one person. Now, fast forward two chapters to Isaiah 11. Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah 11. We're going to look at verse 1 and 10. You might think that's somewhat strange, but you'll see why. Let's look at Isaiah 11, 1, and then verse 10. But again, this is still giving us doctrine about Christ, who the Emmanuel child is of Isaiah 7, 14. So Isaiah 11, 1, we see that the Messiah is the shoot of David. Isaiah eleven ten, 10, he's the root of David. And it's what's, it forms what's called an inclusio, so notice what it says in Isaiah 11.1. 1. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The image of the Davidic kingdom at this time in history is that it was a mighty cedar tree that had fallen. And you ask yourself, well, how is it going to be rectified? Well, God is going to bring a little, a little shoot up with inconspicuous beginnings, but he is in fact going to be the Messiah. Notice the term shoot. It's It's koter. And notice he's from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Well, that's David's father. So this is a fancy way of saying God is going to bring the shoot of David, someone who is a descendant of David. He's a human being. Nine verses later, notice Isaiah 11.10. By the way, this passage in Isaiah 11.10 is really referring to the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 11.10, it says, Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Now we don't have the shoot of Jesse, Jesse, which is David, remember David's father. Now we have the root, Shoresh, the source of David. How can you have one person who comes from David, the shoot, also be the source of David, the root? The answer is the God-man. This is the same quandary that Jesus in Matthew 22 puts the leadership of Israel into. Remember, Jesus is playing that famous that famous game show, Stump the Sadducees, Pharisees, and Scribes. And it goes something like this. He says, whose son is the Messiah? And they have something down. They say, yes, he is going to be the son of David. And they get that right. Ding, ding. They win 100. But then Jesus asks, well, then why does it say, and he cites Psalm 110.1, that the Lord said to my Lord... Remember, who's writing this? This is David, who's king over all the earth. He's the king of Israel. The Lord said to my Lord, writes David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Jesus asked the question, how is it that the Messiah then is David's son? And yet he calls him my Lord and you know what they said they said game over we're going home they couldn't answer what he's picking up on is the fact that he's both truly god and he's truly man brothers and sisters that's what we learn today in the gospel of matthew and so what you and i have to see is that throughout the gospels we have jesus one person truly god truly man and he acts through either nature so, for example, in John eleven thirty four, he's acting through his human nature. He asks, where have you laid him? That's regarding Lazarus. Why is Jesus asking that? Because he's a human being. He's gathering information. In fact, we see the same idea in Luke 2, 52, where it says as Jesus was getting older as a child, it says that he kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Does God have to grow in wisdom and stature? No, but the human Jesus did. The human Jesus asked, where have you laid him? John eleven thirty four. He's gathering information. He's acting from his human nature. But this same Jesus later, for example, in John 21, 17, do you remember, this is where he's restoring Peter. Peter, who denied Christ three times, is asked by Christ three times, do you love me? And in the third time, when Jesus asked the question, Peter's exasperated, and what does he say? He says, Lord, you know all things. And he's exactly right. Jesus is God who knows it all. And he can act through either nature. Dear ones, today, in Matthew, Matthew eight twenty four, he's really sawing logs. Jesus himself, not some surrogate, Not some stand-in, some stunt double. It was Jesus himself who was asleep in the back of the boat. He's really sawing logs. He's really a human being. But this same Jesus, the next moment, verse 26, he says, peace be still. Or as Matthew records it, epitamao, he rebukes the winds and the sea, and it's all done. Why? Because he's really God. The point is that one man with two natures, truly God, truly man, he will act through either nature. And this explains then when we come to the Olivet Discourse. Remember here, Jesus is going to talk about when does the Parousia come? He's answering the question, when will these things be? And he says, Peri day, literally, now concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. We have to affirm that the Son in his divinity. He knows all things but if he acts in his humanity he can rightly say that and he acts through either nature and so this explains then why he can say neither the son he's acting through his human nature and it is part of God's providence that God will not reveal to us the timing of the Lord's return it's not for us to know so if anyone says to you I know he's coming on such and such a date no you don't know that because the Lord alone knows that the Lord knows alone The time of his coming brothers and sisters jesus christ in the hypostatic union is always going to be one person truly god truly man and he will act through either nature that is the way the god man will forever be praise be to god all right now let's move on then to our second point and that is one of the things that i think we've been shown here today by matthew is that Christ certainly has authority over all of creation because he has the power to still the storm. And I think this should be a powerful lesson in our lives today as we have many world leaders who are claiming the ability to calm the storm, as it were, through climate change. They have all these policies in which they're going to take over the weather. They're going to be the ones who still the seas. In fact, Barack Obama, after receiving the nomination to be the Democrat candidate back in 2007 and 2008 he boasted this he said quote this was the moment when the rise of the oceans began to slow and our planet began to heal unquote for those who knew their bibles we knew this was an arrogant boast for those that didn't know their bibles they went on their merry way trusting in men trusting in government Trusting in institutions trusting in the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised But let's look at what the scriptures say Psalm 65 5 through 7 the psalmist says by awesome deeds. You answer us in righteousness. O God of our salvation You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea Who establishes the mountains by his strength being girded with might? Who stills the roaring of the seas the roarings of the right right, waves and the tumult of the peoples brothers and sisters who controls the waves of the sea? It's God alone. The world's oceans and the climate aren't sustained by Al Gore or John Kerry or the IPCC, the international panel on climate change. It's God alone. It's God alone. That is inherent to a Christian worldview. If you don't have that view, you don't know the scriptures. It's God alone who controls the environment. It's God alone who controls the waves of the sea. We see it in Psalm 89. Psalm 89, all about the greatness of God and the wonderment of the Davidic covenant. In Psalm 89, 8 through 9, it says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you? Almighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who rules the sea? Is it the environmentalist? Is it John Kerry driving around in his private jet? No, it's God alone. And so when Matthew portrays Jesus is stilling the sea, he is showing us that, yes, Jesus of Nazareth is really God. He's the creator. And this is a theme that Matthew introduced to us in the very first chapter. In Matthew one twenty three. remember he cites here from Isaiah 7.14, messianic doctrine. He said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Brothers and sisters, the fully... The the fullness of God incarnate is seen in the person and work of Christ. When the tragedies of life come, sadly, all the pagans have our sham artists to turn to. They have nothing but the creation to turn to. That's all they have. But you, dear brothers and sisters, who have plumbed the depths of the Scriptures and believed in its message, you know that your future is held exclusively and securely by the grip of christ who alone controls the waves of the sea it's you who know that in jesus of nazareth we really have god with us that's who he is brothers and sisters on this last slide what i want to show you is the connection between jesus being again truly man and truly god i've mentioned this numerous times and the fact that yes because he can control the sea, he is the only God who saves. First of all, truly God, truly man. Why does it matter? You might say, okay, who cares that he's truly man and truly God? Well, it matters a lot. If he, Jesus isn't truly man, he can't be our new representative. He can't be the new Adam. The first Adam sinned and brought us sin, death, and hell. The apostle Paul portrays Jesus in Romans 5 as the new Adam. He's our new representative. And so that's why it says in Hebrews 4.15 that he was tempted in all things as we are yet without what? Without sin. Jesus as a human can be our new Adam, our new representative. But if he's not truly God, he can't save us. Why? Because Isaiah says so. The Lord says through Isaiah, he says, I, even I, am Yahweh. Remember, Yahweh is all caps. That's the covenant name of God. So he says, I'm Yahweh and there's no savior besides me There is only one savior and it's not any man It's god If jesus isn't god He can't save you If he's not a man He can't represent you. That's why it's necessary Now I want to show you from isaiah 50 verse 2 the very point that matthew was making today to show you again It was in the old testament It's not some johnny come lately theology It's been with us from the beginning In Isaiah 49, 14, it depicts the Israelites as asking the question, where are you, God? It says, Zion will say, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. What Isaiah is depicting is one day in the future, the Israelites, because of their sin, God is going to bring judgment upon them by handing them over to the nations. Remember, Israel was to be a light to the nations. But because of their sin and idolatry, they became like the nations. And so God asked these questions in Isaiah 50 verse 2 to rebut this idea that he had failed them and rather point to their own sin and his own power. Isaiah 50 verse 2. He's answering the question right from Isaiah forty nine fourteen. He says, Why was there no man when I came? Stop there. Why was there no man? Because every one of us are sinners in thought, word, and deed. Romans 3.23. When I called, why was there none to answer? Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. In fact, there's none who seek after him. That's how bleak it is with humanity. That's why. So the problem isn't God. And now notice how he extols his virtue. He asks the question, is my hand so short that it cannot ransom? Or have I no power to deliver? Stop there. What is he asking? He's asking, can I not save The obvious answer to the rhetorical question is, of course he can save. And then what supreme evidence does he give? He says, behold, I dry up the sea with my rebuke. And I'll just stop there. What's the answer that he alone has the power to save? He controls the waves of the sea. Dear ones, that's exactly the message that we got from Matthew here today. How do we know that Jesus Christ alone saves because he controls the sea. Brothers and sisters, whatever crisis you are currently in or whatever crisis you will one day face, remember that Jesus Christ has it all under control. You can trust in the one that even the winds and the seas obey. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for revealing to us the power of your Son, that he really is the God-man, and that our salvation is really found only in him. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for revealing this power so that in the dark days of life, we can have complete trust in him, that we have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, for our friends, our relatives, our co-workers, loved ones that don't, know you. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would regenerate them. We pray that you would give us ample opportunity and boldness to proclaim your gospel so that they may too hear about the excellencies of Christ, that they may be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have the honor of being able to share the Lord's Supper today. At the Gospel of Grace, we do believe that anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ should be a partaker in the Lord's Supper. So what you will do is the ushers will come to your row and they will usher you forward. We have a little cup of grape juice symbolizing the blood of Christ. And we have a wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ. And so both of those elements are here. You will partake of them. There's a little waste basket that you can throw your cup in and then go back to your seat. What I'm going to do is begin by reading the words of institution. You can see them on the screen. And I'll read them to you from 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. Paul said this, he said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So stop there. The, the body... Of Christ, which is broken for our atonement, is symbolized in the wafer. That's what we're symbolizing. And that's why he says, Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, he says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Stop there. The cup that you're going to be taking was probably the third cup. It was the cup of redemption. The last cup in the Passover was the cup of consummation. Remember, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom. What's the next cup that we're going to be celebrating with the Lord? Consummation. Where does it happen? In the marriage supper of the Lamb. Today, when you take that cup and you take the bread, it's a rehearsal dinner. It's a rehearsal dinner. Because one day we're going to be having it with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so notice here, he talks about his coming. Verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what he has done, until he comes. He's coming again to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a foreshadowing of that. Let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that through the shed blood of your Son and his broken body, we have atonement, we have propitiation. We have expiation, the removal of our sins and the appeasement of your wrath. We thank you for this, Lord. We know it's only by your grace through the work of your Son. We're so honored to be made members of your household and your family forevermore. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. And we praise you that you're the King of kings who's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom. We pray, only, Father, that you would bring us to you. And bring us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We thank you for these great promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.